I'm very excited about this message. I am, you'll see. But before we get there, last week, we gave everyone the opportunity to pray and receive Jesus, become a Jesus follower. If you prayed that prayer last week, if you became, gave your life to Jesus, you became a Jesus follower, or you recommitted yourself to Jesus last week, would you please let me know? I got to keep track of that. I want to get you plugged in for the next steps. Also, we'll be heading to the beach in February, which will be here before you know it, for uh, beach baptisms. For those of you who are from up north, you've never heard the expression heading to the beach in February, but it's really a great time to go. If you'd like to be baptized, please let me know. You don't necessarily have to do it today. A couple of you have told me, but uh, we just want to make sure we schedule that. Now, this weekend is Christmas Eve. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, see, the kids answer real fast. <laughs> you guys. We'll be talking about the birth of Jesus, of course, but today we're going to be wrapping up our Christmas series, Who Needs Christmas? And just to recap where we've already been back in week one, we answered the question, who needs Jesus or who needs Christmas, by pointing out that the world needs Christmas because we can't save ourselves. And then last week, we answered who needs Christmas by observing that in one way, God needed Christmas in order to get our attention. And today, as we find one more answer to the question, who needs Christmas, I wanted to talk about how the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, came about. So let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father God, thank you for gathering us together today. Please give us open hearts and minds to receive your word. Allow it to change us, to change our hearts and change our minds and change our lives as we draw closer to you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to start off with some very helpful background, which will help us kind of jump into the Christmas story. And I want to start off with the word Messiah. Now, Messiah is an anglified version, so turned into English, of the Hebrew word Moshiach. And it literally means the anointed one. It also means the savior. Now, the Greek translation of Moshiach, you're actually going to know this one, is the word Christos, which we know by its anglified version what? Christ, okay? So as you've heard me say, Many times, that means that Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? His middle initial is not H for the, any of you who grew up in that world. But it's his job description. See, by Jesus' day, people have been waiting for the arrival of a Messiah, of a Savior, for about 1,400 years. So they understood referring to Jesus as the Messiah, now, as for the name Jesus, I want to talk about that for a minute. The name Jesus is actually an anglicized version of a Latin translation of a Greek name derived from a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name is Yehoshua, or its variant, Yeshua. The Greek rendering is Eosus which becomes Isus in Latin and has been anglified 
to become Jesus. Now, I didn't tell you all that stuff so I could show off, although it was kind of cool. But I told you all of that to show you something important to the story of Christmas. All of the name deriving that brings us to the name Jesus sadly kind of confuses the story. The direct translation of the Hebrew Yeshua into English would give us what? It would give us the name Joshua, okay? We call him Jesus, but the direct English translation of his Hebrew name is Joshua. That means that Jesus' English name is Joshua. And I'm gonna repeat that because it's vital to our understanding of the true story about the birth of the Messiah. Jesus' English name is Joshua. Now that understanding is so important to our understanding because it was important to the Jews. To the Jews, the name Joshua had a very specific, very important connotation. You may recall from the Old Testament, if you've been in church a little while perhaps, grew up in a Jewish household, that Joshua was Moses' right-hand man, was Moses' general. And now while Moses was the lawgiver, Joshua was the warrior who vanquished the Canaanites and brought the Israelites into the Promised Land. So the Jews in Jesus' day were not waiting for another lawgiver. They already had plenty of laws, about 613 of them. They were waiting for a Joshua. They were waiting for a warrior who would deliver them from their oppressors. Now with this background in mind, We'll get on with the story. Mary, whose Hebrew name was Miriam, I'm going to stop, but I just want you to know that, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. In that day, girls were pledged to be married around 12 or 13 years of age. Think about that. Think of the 12 or 13-year-old girls you know, okay? And then they were married by the time they were 13 or 14. So they're very young brides, meaning that by our standards, Mary was really a child, very, very young. So we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. When Mary had been betrothed, and I put in there legally pledged to be married. That's what betrothed means. So when Mary, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, under Jewish law, that means that Mary could have faced the death penalty if it was proven that she violated her pledge to marry. Interestingly, Joseph, when he heard that, didn't believe her at first. How do we know he didn't believe her? Well, we keep reading. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And then it says this, as he considered this. So he was still thinking about it. Okay? He didn't exactly believe the story. He didn't know what to believe. So he, he's still thinking about it. He wasn't really buying into it, but he was a fair man. And he wouldn't harm this, this young girl whom he probably thought was just being a little bit misguided. She's, maybe she's a, like, a, like children can be fanciful. Maybe that's what he was thinking. He didn't know. So he determined that he would simply have his marriage contract with Mary nullified or annulled. Jewish law actually provides that a man may obtain a legal document, it's called a get, 
We in English spell it G-E-T-T. It's a bill of divorce. And that would nullify the marriage. Now, because they were legally bound to marry by the betrothal, they needed to be legally disconnected by the get. So Joseph was considering getting a get in order to terminate his relationship to Mary. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So while Joseph is weighing his options, okay, he's still weighing his options, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now understand this, calling him a son of David doesn't mean he was David's literal son. It's a way of describing Joseph as a descendant of David. Obviously, it wasn't literal. David had lived about a thousand years before then, so that's not what we're talking about. But it's included in this verse because it was important that Joseph was in David's line. Joseph was a descendant of David. So the angel told told Joseph not to be afraid to continue on with Mary because at that moment, if he said, don't be afraid, what was happening? Joseph was afraid. Okay, He was afraid to take Mary home as his wife. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense. If Joseph had taken Mary home as his wife, people would think that the baby wasn't his. But it wasn't. And people would eventually find that out. And that would put everyone's reputation, everyone's honor at risk. And Joseph was afraid of the mess that all that would cause. So clearly the angel's appearance put Joseph's mind at ease and convinced him that Mary must have been telling the truth. Now, I want to jump ahead for a moment, just a, just a verse, to verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here, Matthew takes a moment this is kind of, the, kind of a one, uh, non sequitur here, but it's a little bit of inside baseball, as they say. This is something for people who understood, something a little bit extra. So when the Jews were reading this gospel or, or hearing this gospel, when they came to this part, it no doubt elicited a collective, ah, uh, from them. Why? Because Judaism is a messianic religion. It's a religion waiting for a savior, waiting for a messiah. And for centuries, as they were subjugated by oppressor after oppressor, the Jews kept looking to God to send them a redeemer, a messiah. So when Matthew, in kind of this sort of non sequitur, references a 750-year-old quote uttered by the prophet Isaiah, to encourage an earlier group of oppressed Jews who are praying for God to save save them, to send them a savior from their Babylonian overlords, the Jewish people reading or listening to Matthew's gospel understood the reference. And when the reference to the virgin birth was included in the story of Mary carrying the child conceived by the Holy Spirit, at least to the Jews hearing it, this unbelievable story became a bit more plausible, if not a little bit more believable. Matthew told us, verse 21, we're going back now. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, because of what we talked about a minute ago, we now know that the scripture more accurately said that Joseph was to give the child the name Yeshua, 
He was to give the child the name Joshua. And remember, we talked about Joshua was the name of the warrior that took on the enemies of God's people and led God's people into the promised land over a thousand years prior. So when Joseph heard that his betrothed, that Mary was carrying the next Joshua, the whole story started to sound less ridiculous and more miraculous. Maybe the Messiah was finally on his way. But the angel continued. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because. And right there, Joseph hears the because. And though we can't know for sure, we can pretty well surmise he must have been thinking because. I already know the because. I already know why I should give him the name Jesus, the name Joshua. We Jews have been a subjugated people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We've been oppressed by Assyria, and then Babylonia, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now we're living under the heel of the Romans. You don't have to tell me because. You don't have to tell me why I should call the boy a name that means the Lord saves. It's obviously time for that promised Messiah to arrive. And the angel continued. You'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. And Joseph's listening along. He's like, uh-huh, right. He's going to save his people. Got it. That's what Joshua will, will do again. He'll save his people. The first Joshua saved his people from the wilderness and drove out all the enemies and delivered his people into the land God had promised. And the new Joshua is going to come along and save his people from those Roman invaders, from those Roman oppressors. So the angel continued from there, and Joseph's going, yeah, right, got it. This is the moment we've been waiting for our whole lives. In fact, this is the moment we've been waiting 2,000 years for. Joseph's thinking we all know about Abraham, but with all the stuff that's happened to us since then, we're kind of starting to lose confidence. We thought God had forgotten us, but I guess we're finally here now. God's going to save his people from... And the angel continued... God's going to save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And Joseph's thinking, wait, what? Uh, Angel, did, did, did you just say that God will save his people from their sins? Uh, Angel, I think there's been a mistake. Could you please check your notes again? And the angel said, nope. It says right here, God will save his people from their sins. And Joseph's thinking, angel, listen, I'm not, I don't be disrespectful or anything, but that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, sure, we need to be saved from a lot of things. We need to be saved from our enemies. We need to be saved from starvation. We need to be saved from thieves. And, and once we're saved from those things, we need to be saved to freedom and to community and to love and to happiness. But, but sin, that doesn't make sense. We're Jews. We've already got a time-tested system to save us from our sins. It's called the temple system. Our scriptures give us detailed instructions about how to take care of our sins. All we need to do to get rid of our sins is get a goat or a dove or a lamb and bring it to the temple for sacrifice. Just done, done and done. That's it. We know how to be saved from our sins. What we need to be saved from right now is Rome. And it's going to take a warrior to do that. You know, like like Joshua. Now, of course, Joseph didn't say any of that. 
Why didn't he say that? Well, this might come as a shock to you, but typically, this typically, when an angel of the Lord speaks out loud to you, it is not advisable to speak and talk back. So if that ever happens to any of you guys, just keep that in mind. So when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, when he woke up, Joseph knew what he had to do, even if he was confused. And Joseph did what any of us would have done if an angel had spoken directly to us. We go to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. So as we begin to wrap up this series and we get ready for Christmas Eve on Saturday night, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the meaning of Christmas. So I want to put this verse back up here. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Because the meaning of Christmas rests upon the meaning of this verse. But the full meaning of this verse oftentimes gets lost in the sauce, and here's why. The angel said, you're to give him the name Jesus, you're to give him the name Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. But that is not what we hear. When we hear you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, what we hear is you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people of their sins or for their sins. Do you hear a difference? The angel said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But what we hear is you are to give him the name Jesus because he will forgive his people of their sins. Now we often, and it's probably unintentional, or even unknowing, we misinterpret Jesus' saving people from their sins to mean only that Jesus was forgiving people of their sins. And when we do that, we end up limiting the entire meaning of Christmas to forgiveness alone. And while it's understandable that we make that mistake, because after all, we do believe it. It is true that that's part of the Christian message. Part of the Christian message is nobody's perfect, but God forgives. When we do something wrong, God forgives. But that only makes up a part of the Christmas message. The whole message of Christmas, the whole message that the angel of God gave to Joseph in the dream, the whole message of the gospel is so much bigger than that. And if you limit Christmas to only forgiveness, you miss the primary message. Check this out. This is pretty cool. Jesus came to deliver us not only from the penalty of sin or the consequences of sin. And when you think about it, it makes sense. We're not always delivered from the earthly consequences of our sin, are we? Our sins are forgiven as far as God's concerned but not of all the impact of sin. Jesus came to deliver us from the power of sin as well. Jesus, remember, Joshua came to free you and he came to free me from the kingdom of, from the dominion of, from the power of sin. Jesus came to deliver us from our slavery to sin. You see, in Jesus, we're delivered from, we're saved from the power of sin in our lives. Jesus alluded to this throughout his ministry. I'm going to show you one example. Most of us are familiar with this story. This is the woman caught in adultery. 
Jesus was at the temple early one morning getting ready to teach the people when the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees dragged a woman before him whom they say was caught in the act of adultery. Now, now think about the logistics for a moment, okay? They're standing there just yard, yards away from where sacrifices of animals was taking place. They're standing really close to the place where animals were sacrificed to take care of people's sins. She was standing really close to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place inside the temple, the place where they believed the law resided. So she had to be absolutely mortified. She had to be absolutely ashamed to be standing there so close to the temple, caught in her sin. And they said to her in John 8, or they said to Jesus in John 8, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? What were they trying to do? Verse 6 tells us they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus knew they were trying to trick him. He called their bluff. He knew that they weren't going to stone her. How did he know they weren't going to stone her? Because they weren't allowed to stone her without Roman approval. The Jewish law said they could, but the Romans said, no way, you're not doing that unless we approve it. John notes that actually a little bit later in John chapter 18. We have no right to execute anyone said the religious leaders. So playing along for the moment, Jesus said to them, oh, okay, stoner. And here's a suggestion as to how you can get started with the stoning. Here's what he said. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What happened next? You guys remember the story? Those who heard began to walk away one at a time. I'm always picturing the Homer Simpson backing into the bushes. The older ones left first because they picked it up more quickly. Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So Jesus calls her bluff, and they all kind of slink away. And then Jesus says two things to the woman. He says this, the first thing. This is the one that most people remember the best. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. So Jesus said to her, in essence, you don't have to go into the temple to have your sin forgiven anymore. I am the lamp of God. I have the power, and I forgive you right here and right now. So you think about it. Who has the power to forgive sin? Only God has the power to forgive sin. So that right there was amazing, that Jesus, God in a bod, as Andy likes to say, looked into the woman's eyes and forgave her on the spot. And that drove the religious leaders bananas every time he did that. And then Jesus says the second thing. And this is the thing that most people overlook. Jesus said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. The King James translation puts it this way, go and sin no more. You guys have heard it that way more likely. Having forgiven her sin, Jesus says to her, now cut it out. Now quit sinning. Now sin no more. And we have to ask ourselves, is that possible? Can we sin no more? Can we leave our captivity to sin? Can we say no to sin? And though we can't do it completely through Jesus, we can be on our way to that goal. Joseph Nally says it this way, Though a Christian is not sinless, he will sin less. That's like a Christian version of a dad joke, sort of, right? Jesus said as much a few chapters later in John chapter 10, when Jesus was addressing the Pharisees about how they were akin to thieves. 
trying to steal the sheep away from the true shepherd, here's what he said. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came not only to forgive his people of their sin, but to free his people from their sin. Jesus, the long-awaited Joshua, came not only to forgive his people for something, he came to deliver his people from something. Eternal life, he would later say, is not just for heaven. It's also for the here and now in John 17. Now this, this right here is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Later on, the apostle Paul, remember Paul, a Pharisee who became a Jesus follower? He expounded upon this truth from Jesus. In a letter that Paul wrote to the believers living in Rome, Paul said this in Romans 6, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not allow sin to continue being your king, to continue being your master so that you will obey its evil desires. Do not allow yourself to stay, to remain under the authority of sin. Paul was saying that the followers of Jesus have a choice. And that's why Jesus came, to deliver his people, to deliver us from sin. And then Paul said, do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather. But rather means we have a choice. But rather means there's an option, there's another way. And what is that other way? But rather, offer yourselves, I added that just so it flows a little better, offer yourselves not to sin, but to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer yourselves to God. Offer yourselves to Jesus, to Joshua, to God the Son, who came that they may have life, that we may have life and have it to the full. See, I hope you can see it now. When Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, we can see that Jesus came not only to forgive us of our sin, but to set us free from our sin as well. And then Paul finished the thought in Romans 6.14, for sin shall no longer be your master. And here's what that means. It means that when you're a follower of Jesus, when you've gone to Jesus, when you've gone to the Lord, when you've gone to God and said to him, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I need a savior, and I know that out of your love for me, God, you sent your son Jesus as that savior, and I want to turn from my sin to Jesus who paid the penalty for that sin with his life and came back from the dead to return to you with the promise of one day coming back to earth to usher in God's kingdom. From this day forward, I will follow Jesus and devote my life to him. When you say that, when you go to God in that way, sin is no longer your master. And at the end of his teaching, Paul summarized with a statement that you may remember if you've been around church for a little while. In Romans 6, he says this, for the wages of sin is death. That sounds weird in English, but it's basically the, 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 the thing you get paid for sin is you die. The cost of sin is you die. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The payment for sin, the outcome for sin, the result of sin is death. For everyone, everyone, believers and non-believers alike, if you think about it, you know this to be true. Sin kills. Sin always kills something. Sin kills marriages, 
Sin kills financial security. Sin kills relationships. Sin kills the way we see ourselves. Sin kills our well-being. Sin kills our health. Wherever there's sin, something always dies. And here's the kicker. Even forgiven sin kills something. Our prisons are full of men and women whom God has forgiven, but who will still spend a good portion of their lives, if not the rest of their lives, stuck there because even forgiven sin kills things. And Jesus came into this world not simply to forgive us of sin, but to be Joshua, but to be our warrior, to deliver us from the dominion and the power and the captivity to sin. Because the wages of sin is always death. When there's sin, something always dies. But the gift of God that we celebrate at Christmas is eternal life and The gift that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus is a gift we receive right now, right in this earthly life, in this temporal life. When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of God's life, eternal life, a life free from the power and bondage to sin, a life that frees us from sin's control. That's the gift of Christmas. Not just forgiveness for, but also freedom from the power of sin through Christ. That's the gospel. That's faith in Jesus. That's what Christmas is. Through Christ, we're given a new master. And here's the best news. If you're a follower of Jesus, but throughout your walk of faith, all you've experienced is simply trying and failing and getting forgiveness, trying and failing and getting forgiveness, trying and failing and getting forgiveness, you're a bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Why? Because you've been wandering around with those ruby red slippers on your feet. And even though you don't realize it, you can go home anytime you want. You can return to God anytime you want. All you have to do is click your heels together and say, no. You can be free from sin anytime you want. You can say no to sin anytime you want. And maybe like Dorothy, you just needed somebody to tell you. So if you're a Jesus follower, I'm going to be the one to tell you. Sin is not your master. Lust is not your master. A lack of self-control in some area of your life is not your master. Food is not your master. Alcohol is not your master. Prescription drugs are not your master. Your anger is not your master. Your jealousy is not your master. Your bad habits are not your master. When you became a believer, you were placed into Christ. And Jesus came into the world to do more than forgive you of your sin. He came to set you free from your sin. Sin is not your master. You can go and sin no more. Every morning you can go to God and say, Lord, I want to surrender all of me to you today because sin is not my master. And I will not submit the members of my body to something that is no longer my master. Christmas means that you do not have to live as a prisoner of sin because sin is not your master. Christmas is a standing invitation from your Father in heaven. You have been invited into a relationship where sin has, no longer has to be your master because you're not under law. You're under grace. So who needs Christmas? The world did. And who needs Christmas? God did because he needed a way to demonstrate his love for us. Who needs Christmas? 
anyone who needs to be saved from their sin. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to make this a reality in every moment of our lives. Lord, even in this moment, would you open the eyes of our heart to see what has been a reality for many of us for many years? And would you maybe, Lord, even in this moment during this prayer, for some person that's been in that awful cycle of sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, for someone who feels like things are good between you and them and yet continues to undermine their own success, to undermine their own marriage, to undermine their own health, to undermine their own relationships with the people around them, Lord, would you open their eyes and let them see that from this point on they can say to sin, no, you are not my master. When Jesus came, when he was born into this world, he came as Joshua, the deliverer, the warrior, to free us from the bondage and dominion of sin. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wisdom to know what to do with this extraordinary good news. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.